before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. A very special guest on this episode of the Grant Williams podcast is my dear friend, Simon Hunt, the founder of Simon Hunt Strategic Services. Simon and I have been friends for years, and during that time, he's been an incredible resource to me for understanding what's actually happening on the ground in China, as he's one of the few analysts of that particular region who spends a considerable amount of his time in-country talking to politicians and business owners. He's also been a tremendous sounding board for geopolitical possibilities to me over the years, and he certainly helped me frame a number of potential outcomes on the political stage, many of which, I have to say, have come to pass just as he posited they would. Simon's also the person to whom I turn whenever I want to understand the dynamics impacting copper markets, as his work in that field is, to me, best in class. Now, you can find out more about what Simon does for a very select group of clients via his firm, Simon Hunt Strategic Services, at the company's website, which is shss.com, but you won't find him on social media. So, with the stage well and truly set, please enjoy my conversation with my dear friend, Simon Hunt. Simon Hunt, my dear friend, how are you? It's so, so good to see you after such a long time. And likewise, it's been far too long. It really has. It really has. You, you are decamped now into the, the warmth of uh, the United Arab Emirates. I am. I got here by mistake. I came out in uh, literally a year ago for a three-week holiday down into the province of Fujura to a lovely resort called the Meridian on the coast. And then, of course, the UK locked down. And by the middle of the year, I, I had to decide, am I going back to the mess in the UK or am I going to stay here? So I made the decision to stay here with my kids' blessings. Fantastic. Well, it's, I mean, look, for you, it's a, it's a great place to be because it's a great staging post for getting to Asia, which is obviously where you spend a lot of your time over these last, well, how many years now? <laughs> Since 1993. Since 1993. So yeah, we're almost almost 30 years in. And, and you know, you're one of the people who I know who who genuinely has been to China and put their boots on the ground more times than I can count, more times than you can count, I'm sure. And so, you know, when, whenever people talk about China, I always find myself with your kind of wing commander's voice in the back of my head as a, as a kind of sanity check and someone that really knows <laughs> what's really going on. So there will be some people who haven't heard you and I chat before because it's been such a while. So perhaps you could, could just kind of give people a bit of your background, and particularly with with reference to your your background in China, what takes you there, the kind of people you, you work with in China, just so we can set the stage for what's to follow. I ran another consultancy company, which I founded in 1975, which grew into a beast that got taken over after I had left. And in 1993, thanks to an introduction made by a board director for Akwawa in Tokyo, I started pounding the roads around China. And for the next 17 years, every year I was visiting about 80 factories in about 50 different towns and cities. The 1990s were really exciting times, really intriguing. And then 
because around about 1995, 1996, the word came down into the factories that China was going to join WTO. And suddenly from being a closed shop, they were asking questions. We want new technology. We want X, Y, and Z. What can you do to help us? Right. And it was a really interesting, exciting time. I have to say in, uh, some of the road trips were pretty bloody dangerous. And then uh, as China found their feet and made their footprint on the big wide world, the excitement died down and it became much more of a slog, but always fascinating. I mean, you always every trip uh, when I was still spending until lockdown two months every year in China, to, uh, going around um, 80 different factories, but confined to a few old friends uh, and some new ones. Every trip you learn something new. Yeah. And what's missing now is, of course, the body language. Um, yeah, of course. Even doing a, a Zoom call, which I don't seem to do to China for various reasons, you miss that body language when you ask a question. So one, one lives with what one's got. So, you know, you get on with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we're all in that, we're all in that same boat. Just if you can, paint a picture for China in the 90s and what a trip there kind of entailed. Because, you know, post-WTO, all we've really seen is this, this mushrooming of these enormous great cities. We've seen what's happened to Shenzhen. We've seen what's happened to Shanghai. We've seen what's happened to some of the provincial cities that really no one had even heard of before this, and yet are surprised to find they've got you know tens of millions of people living in them. So, so just take us back to the nineties when none of that was really happening, and what and what it was like to actually to to get around China firstly before all the all the high speed trains and stuff, and then what it was like to try to have real productive conversations with the Chinese. Were they more guarded then pre WTO when they were? had fewer foreigners coming to talk to them, or were they were they less guarded? Well, first of all, getting around was not easy. You did not have the fantastic airports that you have today. Uh, Beijing Airport was a tiny little thing. You queued up for hours to get a seat on an aeroplane. They weren't frequent. And you would arrive, say, in Harbin, and luckily, I'm taken around by senior engineer in, in a, a group within the Ministry of Machinery. And uh, from there, you go and visit maybe two or three factories, uh, usual evening banquets, which were quite an amusing experience. And I quickly learned on my first night that there were six of them and one of me. And that they would get up and down toasting me all the time. So I was drinking six times as much as they were. So the second evening I said, well, I'm going to treat you guys, you guys to a And I got up like a jack-in-the-box toasting them, and they all had to get up and, and drink with me. So it was a Paris Passu drinking session. <laughs> but it, it was going to the outlying regions where you would arrive at an airport uh, late at night, and then have a three, four hour drive, mostly on dirt roads. And <clears throat> you would arrive in, to take one example, into what looked like a very plush hotel. And I'm taken up to my room and it's got a sort of a six foot television screen and everything looked wonderful. 
until you went into the bathroom and suddenly realized that um, plumbing was not actually <laughs> installed. <laughs> and in terms of conversations in those early days, they were pretty guarded. And, oh, yeah, we're running at 100% capacity until you went round the plant and you saw no way. But what was also very interesting, production was not geared to what was sold. Anything that was not sold went into inventory. And I, I can recall going into a telecom cable yard and cable was stacked, maybe half a mile long by 200 yards wide. So you suddenly got a, an, an appreciation of what was going on in China. And then, of course, you know, things as the years went on, planning got much more geared towards sales. And now, of course, it's pretty sophisticated. Yeah, I, I think the, the big, big thing which is misunderstood in the West, they were very smart. They set up the infrastructure so you created very efficient supply chains. People talk about, oh, we're going to localize our production instead of having it in China, we'll have it in America. But what they don't understand, it's not just one company in a supply chain, it's several. I mean, take Apple as an example. They have 150 odd different plants supplying bits and pieces to them, owned by 100 separate companies. Yeah. I think what we found out in the pandemic is how much the world depends upon China. It's not just the big sophisticated stuff. It's little things like light switches. And I mean, you go and talk to builders in the UK, which a friend of mine has been doing. Oh, I can't complete this building. Got no light switches. Yeah. Or I can't get the steel mesh for the concrete. Where does it come from? China. This is not there. You can't deliver. You can't complete. Yeah. It's fascinating how deeply the world economy has come to rely on China. And we'll, and we'll be back to China for sure for a lot of this podcast. But with that kind of background in place, so people get a sense of, of kind of how you got involved in China in the first place. The other thing I'd like to do to set the stage is talk about something that you and I have been talking about off and on for well, well over a decade now, as Brzezinski and his grand chessboard book, I guess, which was, is what started the whole thing. Because th this is a theory that I think the book was written around the time that you were actually making it. So I think it was written in the mid-90s, perhaps. Um, so it would have tied in quite nicely with your early travels to China. So to talk a bit, if you can, about uh, the grand chessboard strategy, why it's important, because, you know, you, as I say, you and I have been talking about it for years, and, and your take on it has always, I've felt, just such a great way to frame what is, A, a much broader discussion, and in the last few years is turning into a much more important discussion. Well, really, it goes back to 1904, when Helfer McKinder, who was a geographer, created this theory that the world depends upon the heartland. And the heartland is the physical landmass bonded by the Pacific on one side and the Atlantic on the other. And he basically concludes that he who controls the heartland controls the world. So Brzezinski's real policy, which I think was continued and is continuing to be continued by Kissinger, is we have to divide China and Russia because they're the big two players in the heartland. So the unexpected consequence of trying to contain China and Russia is that it's drawn two sort of semi-enemies together 
into one very strong strategic, economic, and cultural relationship, which only recently Putin, after uh, one of his video calls with Xi, actually did explain in his annual Q&A with the press, which I always do my best to listen to most of, he was just emphasizing how close that relationship is and really suggesting that should there be conflict between one of them and an outside adversary, which would obviously be America, that the other one would come to their aid. So if you think you're going to attack Russia, you're not. You're going to be attacking both countries. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, as you say, when, when this policy was put in place or, or certainly advocated for by Brzezinski, which, is, as you say, in, in the, in the, I think it was the Carter administration originally, of course, China and Russia were two very different beasts back then. I mean, Russia was seen as the great enemy uh, in the Cold War, but I think even deep inside the administrations, they knew the limits of their capabilities as a as a kind of real kinetic opponent. And China, as you say, was a, a large country, but really a backwater. And so to kind of put that strategy in place was a very sensible thing to do, but it was you had all kinds of tailwinds behind you that would make it look like you were being incredibly successful and dominating and doing all these kind of things. And of course, in the background, that what we spoke about at the top of the program, that outsourcing of just about everything to China particularly has given them the ability to grow in every sense of the word, not just economically, but strategically and politically and militarily. While Russia has under Putin, and I wrote about this in, in the November uh, Things That Make Your Home, Putin has become a very strong leader like Xi, who is a master at geopolitics and is is making all kinds of moves uh, on Russia's behalf that really are, are, if not embarrassing the West, then certainly proving to be very difficult to counter. So now we have a situation where in the heartland you have two completely different powers, much, much more solid, much grander in scale and efficiency, who have spent the last 40 years kind of gently pissing off in all sorts of different ways. And you have a very different adversary at a time when America is arguably weaker, certainly politically, than it's been in that entire time. So when you kind of frame it that way and you look at the heartland, what do you see as the likely way things move forward from here? Now, let's go back to the heart of the matter. Go back to the Gorbachev uh, meeting with, um, I think it was Papa Bush, when the breakdown of the Berlin Wall, and the opening hole, start of the demise of the Soviet Union. There were actual assurances, written assurances given by James Baker, the then Secretary of State, and the American government, following his famous remark, not one inch eastward, was followed by a cascade of assurances given by American and other NATO officials that they would not move eastwards. And this was confirmed in 2017 by declassified US, Soviet, German, British, and French documents posted under the National Security Archives uh, now in George Washington University. And this has been a consistent complaint by Russia that the West has not adhered to what were given written assurances. And we're now reaching a point where 
one inch more. And it really makes a policy decision by Russia to do something about it. And Ukraine and Belarus are obviously the two big examples. The other thing that we must take into account is that both China and Russia have advanced their military technology enormously. And in fact, uh, this was written by a friend of mine who knows what's going on in these things. China has made great strides in technological improvements, whether for missiles, naval or air instruments. Two developments are worth noting. The first is the ongoing development of a fractional orbital bombardment system armed with hypersonic glide warheads. The recent test was declared a 90% successful one. A second has been launched, which was equally successful. This is a big game changer. The Chinese missile is based on the Soviet fractional orbital bombardment system. There is evidence that the Russians are supporting this Chinese development. The second is the Dongfeng East Wind or DF missiles. These are a series of short to medium intermediate range and intercontinental ballistic missiles based initially on technology transferred by the Soviet Union in the 1960s and perfected by the Chinese. These missiles are designed primarily for nuclear warheads. The anti-naval missiles are a different class of missiles entirely. These are just two of the examples of not just how China has improved its military technology, but Russia as well. So you know, with, with this as a kind of stage, when you, and you look at what's happening with Putin, and, and like you, I always try and ideally watch, but always listen to his, you know, the Valdai Discussion Club meetings, which is, as I wrote about in November, and his kind of end of year, new year address to the nation. It's always remarkable to me to see the, the disparity between how Putin is painted in the West and what you actually see if you do find an opportunity to, to listen to hear him speak. And as I said when I wrote about him, you, know, you put aside the murderous thug thing because, look, you don't get to be a lieutenant colonel in the KGB without being a murderous thug and you don't rise to the head of a country without being a murderous thug. So we can we can agree with that. That, that doesn't really help anybody's personal understanding of the situation. You have to look at him as a politician and, a, and as a leader of a country. And he, frankly, is running geopolitical circles around the leaders of the big Western democracies at the moment for reasons that are too numerous to get into. But if you listen to his Valdai Discussion Club uh, speech particularly, you'll get a sense of what he's talking about. But the idea that Russia is saying, listen, you're edging too close to our borders with your missiles, back off. If you take that comment in isolation, it's a perfectly reasonable statement to make. I mean, this is what the Americans said at the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? You know, we're not having Russian missiles so close to our borders. But obviously it's framed as Russian aggression. In Russia, it's seen as self-defense. What do you think happens with the with the standoff over the Ukraine um, in, in the next couple of months? <clears throat> Big and a difficult question to answer. First of yeah. All- well, I t- actually, Simon, I'll tell you what, let, let me, let me re- reframe it. Let me reframe it. <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you think this is really about? Is this an opportunistic move by Putin, knowing that the West are struggling with the pandemic. They've got a group of leaders who seem woefully unfit for the task, and he's just decided this is a moment for me to actually get some concessions here because I I can run rings around them. Or is this a genuine state where he's been angling for this and he just happens to be ready 
to make these moves at a point where he does have a, a kind of weak team to play against, if you want to put it that way? First of all, he has no wish to enter Ukraine. The Russians have rebuilt the fortifications of Donbass. I'm told there are Russians on vacation in Donbass. One can guess who they are. <laughs> um, on the other side, of course, NATO has, I think, the number is something like 4,000 military observers sitting in and around Kiev. Arms have been flowing in from NATO and drones from, from Turkey, which is, has upset uh, the Russians. The West, having signed the Minsk Agreement, France and Germany, have ignored it, ignored all the articles in that agreement. So NATO, including uh, America, of course, and Russia, are poised for aggression. I think that the problem in Washington is that there's a hangover of those in the Obama administration who were very anti-Russian neoconservatives who actually initiated the revolution in, in, in the Ukraine in 2014. So they're still there. On the other side, the heads of the Pentagon, I think, have saner heads. And I think uh, that with all this fiery verbosity going around, that through the back channels, discussions have begun to see if we can find common ground. In other words, it's time for old-fashioned diplomacy. Russia knows that whilst on paper NATO looks like a powerful force, they actually know it's not. It's politically divided. There are intergovernment fights. So they know that NATO is not the force that it looks to be on paper. So now we get into the realms of speculation. And I think that the saner heads will prevail, that there will be a reincarnation of the Minsk Agreement, which will allow independence for Donbass. What happens for Ukraine itself, if the oligarchs, who are those very powerful right-wing groups, don't get their way, they will ditch the president. And if they find there's going to be more success by playing with Russia than playing against Russia, then they'll do that. So if luck holds out, I think we will have a satisfactory agreement over Ukraine. Belarus is another broken down country. And the probability is that the president of Belarus will go to Putin and say, we need you, we want to join your motherland. So bottom line, that then comes back to what happens on the other side, China and Taiwan and America. I think it's very likely that after the Olympic Games, China is going to increase its aggressive words and tactics against America for their stance on Taiwan. So we get, having had the West, this high tension situation, which hopefully leads to a peaceful end. 
with a similar situation building up over Taiwan. Again, I don't think that um, China wants to make any military aggression over Taiwan. I think that over time, they will find their own compromises. Deng always said, so I'm told, that 2028 was the time when Taiwan and China will come together. So again, I think that if Sena heads prevail in Washington, and Washington does not cross China's red line, which is basically giving public support for independence in Taiwan, then we'll have another easing of the tensions. Then we need to look at other parts of the heartland. I think that probably within five years, going to see India and Pakistan coming together, brokered by Israel and China. The Israel connection actually goes back to Imran Khan's first wife, who of course had very close connections to Israel and allegedly supported Imran Khan in his election, together with, so I'm told, India and Israel. And I think there's enough compromises can also be reached over Kashmir. So that lovely but troubled part of the world comes into the peaceful process. I think that Pakistan's air force is not the strength that it's purported to be because the Americans have a stop on the F whatever aircraft that they have. So I think that um, this will lead to a realignment of the forces in the region. And then of course you have Iran and the 25 year agreement signed earlier this year between Iran and China is a real game changer. It's not just that they're going to finance the development of Iran's oil and uh, gas fields. It's their spending, I think it was correct, something like $280 billion on infrastructure, another 100 odd billion on developing Iran's manufacturing sector. That's crucially important because the Iranian companies will actually be run by Chinese SOEs, financed by Chinese SOEs, and it will be their new export base. Cheap labor, cheaper infrastructure. So it's a relocation from China to Iran. So then you have to look at you know, what's happening in the Middle East. And you've got Israel making friends again with the UAE, and other parts of, of uh, and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in the region. And there are signs that enmity between Saudi Arabia and Iran is cooling down. Again, who are the brokers? China and Russia. So uh, I think, well, first of all, the powers that be in the, in the area recognize that they have to have growth. You've got, I've forgotten the percentage, huge percentage of the population aged under 24. They need jobs, they need growth. What's not recognized is the educational system in Iran is unbelievable. And I think they spend something like 20% of GDP on education. 
So that you have very over 90% of Iran's population are literate. So you can see that there's a new alignment of forces that are likely to come to the fore within five years, which will completely change political and economic structure of the region. Tie that in with BRI, and then you have to say that Washington has to make a decision. Either we're going to allow this development to take place peacefully, yeah. or else we're going to try and stop it. But to stop it means war, and are you going to win it? So that's really the, the background, I think, that will evolve over the next five years. From a geopolitical standpoint, I think in the West, this is a very lonely voice speaking. Right, but you're used to that. You're used to that. But it's pretty comes clearer and clearer that climate change and COVID is really being run by Klaus Schmidt, the Davos crowd, Great Reset crowd. And you only have to look at the World Economic Forum's board of trustees to see who's involved. And then there was also a meeting on climate change that the Pope had held in the Vatican I stupidly didn't keep the list of attendees. But if you did, you would be horrified. Corporate elite of America were there and Europe. So climate change has been run by politicians and by the media who are bought, most of them. Whereas if you look at what NASA and NOAA wrote in September 2020, where they held a inter-scientific meeting in which they concluded that climate change at SO2's excess levels have seen nothing to do with climate change. Climate change is a function of sunspot activity, volcanic activity, and changes in ocean temperatures. And that starting in 2027, 2028, the world will shift from 70-odd years of warming weather into 70-odd years of cooling weather. And actually, Noah actually saying we're going into cold weather. <laughs> so this has all sorts of implications on agricultural production. What are you going to do with all these billions, if not trillions of dollars that have gone in for renewables and EV cars? What's going to be the reaction of households when they see the heating bills and electricity bills soaring um, in a period when actually the weather's getting colder. So I, I think there are enormous implications. In one report that I read from, if you could only call a reliable source, is that either in or by 2030, there will be a political revolution in the West. The governments have been bought, putting it bluntly, the people have not been bought, and the people will throw out the governments. Yeah, well, you know, let's unpack. There's a lot in there to unpack, and I'm going to start with the with the climate thing because it's fascinating. Because you are a lonely voice on this, and interestingly, my last guest on the podcast, Felix Zulaf, talked about the same thing. And it, it fascinates me that we have issues today which have become so charged politically that they're virtually not possible to discuss and and 
you know, global warming, global cooling is one of them. And I, you know, I listen to Felix and I come at it with the angle that I am not a climate scientist. So, you know, I don't know enough to be definitive on either side. So I'm always happy to listen to both arguments and I'm perfectly willing to understand that everything is cyclical. So, both sides could actually be right. It's just a question of timing, right? Yes, we could be going through a warming phase now, but that doesn't mean to say it continues. It could be cyclical and we could enter a cooling phase. So I'm always keen to get as many different perspectives as I can and try and just keep them all in the back of my mind and evaluate the, the, the situation as it goes. But you know, the conversation with Felix, during which we discussed so many things, and he gave just a fascinating outline of the next four or five years, which is an incredibly useful roadmap. And yet... I think he spoke about potential global cooling for about 30 seconds. And instantly that was the thing that a lot of people glom onto and say, Felix should, you know, I think stick to his knitting and, and he's not a climate <laughs> scientist. And so why the hell is he opining us? When the simple truth is he said, look, here's what I've read. I've got to make a bet on the future and here's the bet I'm making. I'm not telling you anything absolute. I'm telling you the, the information that I've gathered and what my conclusions are, my own personal conclusions. Yours may differ. And it used to be that we could then have a discussion about that and, and share information on both sides and hopefully all walk away with something to think about or more educated about the other side's argument. But that seems impossible these days. But you know, it's just a useful exercise. Even if you are a staunch believer in global warming, and climate change in the northerly direction on the thermometer, then it's useful to actually hear that, you know, that you could be wrong, right? This is the future. You could be wrong. So I'm fascinated that, that you're another voice that I know reads an awful lot of research from an awful lot of different and diverse places, and, and you have come to the same conclusion as, as Felix has on that. Let me add one interesting point. Two of the leading military establishments, obviously all governments all military establishments do their own work on climate change because it has so huge implications. Two of the most important in the Five Eye countries, I know anecdotally, are in complete agreement with my views. Or I should say, I'm in complete agreement with their views, which is that it is CO2 has nothing to do with um, climate warming, that it is a function of long-term climate changes, as I've said before, sunspot activity, volcanic activity, and changes in ocean temperatures. You know, it, it always struck me that the phrase global warming, which was the phrase that was always used, was changed and to, to, to become much more bi-directional. You know, climate change can go in both directions. You can, you can be wrong about climate change and be right at the same time, whereas global warming, you're nailing your colours to a mask. The problem is warming. You know, climate change is it could be anything. But let, let's let's steer away from climate change because I, I let me go ahead. Go ahead. Let me give a because I just found it. Give a quote that was made by NASA and NOAA scientists in September 2020. Solar cycle 24 was a feeble cycle, peaking at 114 sunspots compared with the average of 179. Solar cycle 25 is now underway and is expected to peak at 115 sunspots in July 2025. According to our model, the sun's quiet period will begin around the first half of 2027. Well, you know, the whole debate and the information on both sides fascinates me. And then there's, you know, one of the problems of having 
so much access to so much information now is it's easy to get swamped by it. But I would urge all the people who are listening to this and, and you know, banging both of us as a couple of deniers and, and probably looking to find a way to cancel us to just, to just take this as, as opinion based on reading reports from those far more steeped in this science than us. But let's, let, let's put the, the, that particular um, discussion aside, Simon, and go back to the roadmap you laid out on the geopolitical front across the heartland, because what you've kind of put forward is a really, really interesting new shape for the world. If you have China, Russia... India, Pakistan, Iran, all kind of peacefully cohabiting. And as you said, the BRI, the Belt Road Initiative, you have that factored in all the way from China into Europe. That is a block that it's impossible to ignore. It's a block that's impossible to not give a seat at the very top table. And that, of course, as you pointed out, does mean significant changes, most of all for America, and secondarily, obviously, Europe is is really going to be forced to pick a side if that's the case, because you're going to have this block on your doorstep and America is an ocean away and in a period of retrenchment, in a period where America is becoming more isolated, mainly due to cost-cutting exercise, I, I suspect, to try and get their books in order. But nonetheless, that's that's really what happens. So, you know, as you say, we have a period where there's a decision to be made. Do we let this happen peacefully? Or do we do we confront it? And you know, like you, I've been paying attention to these twenty-five year deals between China and Iran, and Saudi and Iran, and Saudi and Russia, and that there are, there have been so many of these agreements being put in place over the last decade, all in kind of plain sight. If you were willing to look away from the kind of front page of U.S. and Western European mainstream media, this has been happening slowly and steadily for a decade now, but it feels like we're reaching a point where there are enough of these building blocks in place now that suddenly this becomes something to deal with. Uh, am I right in thinking that? And if so, how does it get dealt with? Well, first of all, you're, you're dead right that it is all coming to a climax and the choice is really up to Washington. Do we deal with this peacefully and uh, come part of it and develop with Russia and China uh, spheres of interest, or do we say that this development is going to bring to an end our dollar hegemonic status? And as that happens, then we're going to have huge domestic problems, which you don't have to get into. I think it's going to happen, that is going to happen anyway, because more and more countries outside the top five developed world countries are growing increasingly frustrated by being bullied through having to use the dollar. And I think the real change will come from two developments. The first, the day will come when China will say to countries that export a lot of goods and commodities to them, China will say, we will pay for you in RMB. First of all, they have to clean up their bond market, which they're doing, and um, open up the financial system much more, which they've started doing. So I would say again, within five years, you will find that China will say to say, for instance, Saudi Arabia, we will pay for you for the oil you want to export to us. 
in, in RMB. Uh, at the moment, between Russia and China, all trade is done outside the dollar system. I know that there are specific examples where major companies, international companies or countries, have started being paid for what's imported in RMB. Interestingly, a lot of this trade is done through Singapore. And I think this trend is just simply going to accelerate. Uh, the second development is going to be when China introduces its ERMB. During the Olympic Games, they will be testing it nationally. And it would not be surprising if by 2023, stroke 2024, that they actually introduce the ERMB. What is also significant is that China has very large unpublished reserves of gold. The monetary, well, put it a different way, what is owned by the Chinese government through the different ministries is something of the order of 20,000 tons. To give one example, a couple of years ago, I was having lunch with the CEO of a big Japanese company who said 40% of my revenue comes from China, therefore I have to know anybody who's any importance, one of whom, senior officer in the PLA, who invites me down to HQ for drinks. It started at four o'clock. By six o'clock, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, let's go for a walk. So we walked across the compound to a large warehouse. As he said to me, when the doors opened, my jaw dropped because they're stacked from floor to ceiling with bars of gold. And then the second is that uh, since the Shanghai Gold Exchange was opened, Chinese public have bought 17,000 tons of gold. So you're really talking of China holding gold reserves, something of the order of 40,000 tons. And I know from... Well, which, which to, to put, I mean, just to put that in perspective, people that aren't, don't know the numbers, the US is the biggest holder of gold in the world officially with 8,000 tons. So that's, yeah. you know, that's five times yeah. the amount of gold. If that's, yeah. if that's the right number, it's five times the amount of gold yeah. that the US holds. And uh, I'm told on good authority that Russia holds around 11,000, 12,000 tons. So here you've got two pseudo-communist countries pursuing orthodox fiscal and monetary policies. Yes. With their currencies backed by a large tonnage of gold. If, as we think and my friends think, that sometime around the mid-2020s, the global financial system is going to implode, then who's going to stand out as being the winners? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the mid-2020s aligns perfectly well with Felix's theory that 2020 four or five is going to be the period where we get the final kind of collapse of, of asset prices and uh, equity and bond markets. So that, you know, that fits really well. And it's interesting, you know, that the gold, every time you talk about gold, it's just a, it's just a, a wellspring of conspiracy theory and whispers and rumors and all this kind of stuff, which has always fascinated me. But, you know, when, when we talk about that, what, what, what we have are official figures and what we have, are anecdotal evidence. And there is a lot of anecdotal evidence, which is very strong about the fact that the Chinese keep every ounce of gold that they mine domestically within their borders, as do the Russians for many, many years now. Those are reported facts, but somehow people refuse to believe that the fact that they're doing that 
will not greatly increase the, both countries' gold reserves. Yeah, it, it amazes me this this dissonance that people have when you talk about gold. But I, look, like you, I've I've been following that story closely for decades, and um, it's very clear to me that what you say, if the numbers aren't accurate, they're certainly more accurate than the published figures. And and you're you're right. You know, as I've said before, when the global financial system goes through its inevitable reset, whether it's now, whether it's in five years, ten years, twenty years, who knows? I, I think the closer we are to now, the the shorter the odds are on it happening. But gold will absolutely be required to, at the very least, stabilise the financial system, whatever it's going to look like, the next iteration that will require gold at the centre of it as an anchor, just for everybody to peg everything around as we kind of sort through the rubble. And you're right, if China and Russia between them have that kind of amount of gold, actually as reserves, it is going to make them by far the most powerful block in the world when it comes to redesigning the financial system. So, you know, it's, it is a fascinating thing that people should, at the very least, not just dismiss out of hand as just another gold conspiracy theory, because God knows there are there are plenty of those that you can just dismiss out of hand. Well, listen, let, let's, let's change topics and... Um, and get a bit more granular because the other the other thing that you are famous for is your work on the copper markets and and copper is something that is as we know vital to the entire world economy and your work on the ground is as good as or better than anybody else's I know so I'd love to get a kind of take from you on the copper markets both what the narrative is right now as you understand it and then um, what the reality is from from all the work you do on on the metal itself. Um, where do I start? In every price spike since the 1960s that I've been involved in, there have always been games being played. And the games centre around powerful forces taking metal out of the reporting system into the unreported system by either warehousing the metal in private warehouses or in fabricators' yards on consignment, and a few other tricks. So in the middle of where we are, 2020, when copper prices were around $4,000 level, we were either brave enough or stupid enough to say it's time to buy. What we forgot was that as physical consumption started picking up and the world economy started picking up, that much more powerful forces than I can command decided, let's play the game again. So we went from four odd thousand dollars to ten odd thousand dollars. And again, not supported by physical consumption. In the first nine months of this year, we were probably something like 7.5% higher than in 2020, 3.5% below. 2019. $10,000 or anything over $8,000 creates big problems for companies that consume and fabricate copper. The banks start getting windy, cut credit lines. On ordinary day-to-day business, and on financing inventory, whereas banks would be prepared to finance prior to the spike, maybe 90, 95% of the merchant or fabricator or producer's inventory. It's 80, 85% now, if not lower. 
fabricator will have his, in many cases, if not most, would have his credit lines cut because the bank doesn't want the exposure at that higher price. And because inevitably, a fabricator's margins are cut because of the high price, because he can't pass it all on. So then you come to the end user and an end user says, I've got less credit to go around at $10,000 price than I had at six, five. How can I use less? So he uses at least a brass mill and the spreads are correct, he uses more scrap. But then they go to their R&D departments. How can we design a component product to use less copper? Of course, it's the utilities that are the big, big uh, consumers of copper. And the utilities have gone through these cycles before. Many had earlier, I mean, back to the 2010-2014 period, reduced their copper intake significantly by switching to aluminium distribution cables. Now with this second, with this next slide, the same thing is happening. Utilities, some utilities, no longer specifying copper for their distribution cables. Technology is there, there's no problem. The real game changer is going to be changing technology. And back in that 2010, 2014 period, two companies, Nexon was in France and Sumitomo Electric in Japan, were spending huge amounts on developing high temperature superconductors. And in fact, in a uh, copper meeting, the president CEO of Sumitomo Electric actually said the future is in superconductivity, it is not in copper. Effectively saying, we stuck to copper, we'd go broke. And I've not had an update for a couple of months. Now you are starting to see trials on high temperature superconductors being uh, taking place. The cost is only effective in a high population density area. Apparently there's an area in Chicago that is physically switching to high temperature superconductors. But the cost is going to come down. That's inevitable. So this is not something that's going to happen tomorrow. But over the next five to 10 years, a large chunk of copper's consumption will disappear through technology. And then you've got other developments taking place, like uh, Northwestern University in conjunction with General Motors have developed a graphene copper wire, which in increases the conductivity by 10% and decreases the weight by 10%. So that's all for car harnessing, which is another big usage. Then people talk about, look at all the wiring in, in EVs. Well, actually, 20% of that wiring is aluminium anyway, because it's the heavy cable to and from the battery. That's not in most analyst numbers. So all I'm saying is that high prices create innovation. From innovation, you get new designs that either obviate copper entirely or reduce the amount. So I think that if we are right that the global economy is slowing, copper consumption will be slowing, that there are reasons for thinking that in the first half of next year, business activity globally will be very flat. So all the talk about central banks tightening, raising interest rates. By March, you can forget it because they'll be swinging the other way. 
So we'll be chucking more fiat money into the system. We'll see a recovery because China's going to be very flat, at least through the first quarter, very flat, partly because of the expansion of the COVID variant with large chunks of China being restricted. For instance, all of the ports in northern China, they're shut down. For everything, all bulk, bulk imports shut down. The only thing that's allowed through are foodstuffs and specialized containers. But then a lot of heavy industry is going to be shut down for the Olympic Games. So that's from the 5th to the 20th of February. So it's basically first quarter is a dead duck. They're laying the foundations for a recovery, loosening up monetary and fiscal policies, but they're not going to be opening the taps as, as before. Otherwise, the last five years of deleveraging, you just throw away. So they're not going to do that. Uh, so what we will see in the second half of this year through into late 2023, early 2024, is not just physical consumption growing. The physical consumption will also grow because of um, freight bottlenecks and the COVID. There's a lot of unsatisfied demand will be shoved into the second half of 2022, plus the recovery, plus everybody saying, how am I going to hedge a falling dollar and rising inflation? So you're going to get a typical real spike, which we have at $14,000 sometime late 2023, early 2024. But in the first half, I think we will see prices down to 8,000. You, you always, whenever I talk to you, I have to convert because you always talk in tonnage prices and I always talk in pound prices for copper because that's the way it's quite, because I'm a financial markets guy and, you, and you're a boots on the ground guy. You know, we, we sit here today with copper um, at about four and a half dollars a pound, you know, which is where it got to in 2011 before collapsing back down to, to half that. We saw that first spike in 08. Again, um, it got up to about four, Four, I think about four dollars a pound, and then down to one and a half during the financial crisis. But you know we are at thirty-five year highs in the copper price right now, give or take, maybe maybe longer, but certainly the last thirty-five years we're 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 at the highs. Is this an opportunity? Think, given what you've just laid out, is this an opportunity to be able to trade? copper in, in both directions, as you, as you say, uh, uh, we're too high now, but we're going to go much higher? Or is that inflationary fear, which is it's really kind of picking up now and it's starting to, whether you like it or not, or you believe it's transitory or not, is starting to gain traction in public minds. Is there a chance that the copper price just keeps going up because it's always been a great inflation trade for people? I think the greater risk is that we have this big correction in global equity markets. And that will mean also with slowing activity that you'll see a correction in, in inflation downwards. Uh, but that is just a temporary phase, just as the copper price falls to 8,000 odd is a buying opportunity. It's a buying opportunity, best buying opportunity in 10 years, not longer. But this is not going to be, this is a two, three year blast upwards. Because when the proverbial hits the fan around 2024, 2025, as Felix says, as we say, copper will fall like everything else other than gold. And um, then you will see really low prices. 
But as you come out of this, what we define as a similar experience to 1929, 1932, you come out of a the world that is washed out a lot of its debt, and that you have a world much more equity, much more stable world. And then you will have GDP growing at its historic rates since 1900 of four odd percent a year, and copper growing by four odd percent a year, maybe a bit higher. Depends on the world's reaction to a change in, in weather, how that's going to impact renewables. <laughs> you're, you're just toying with me now. You're desperate to bring this back to that, aren't you? Just 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 to fill my email mailbag with 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 comments about that. Well, Simon, you know, it's it's interesting to me because you know, you and you and I have known each other for I don't know well over a decade now, and um, all along the way, whenever we've chatted, you've always laid out these kind of long term visions for me, and it's it's remarkable to me how many of them that you suggested would happen that seemed kind of borderline crazy at the time to me. I kind of looked at the national thought, can he be right? I just don't see how he can be right about this. And, you know, one by one, so many of them have actually come to pass, which is why I wanted to kind of, after speaking to Felix, get your thoughts about, about this in the next few years, because it's, um, you know, you're someone who's, whose opinion I've come to value greatly over the years. So I, you know, I can't thank you enough for taking some time, over the holidays to, to sit and chat with me about all this stuff because I, I truly find it absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you very much for having me, and it's great to see you again. Likewise. I can't remember the last what I can remember. Well, yes, we had we had lunch a couple of years ago, but that was that was yeah, that was listen, that was a whole different world. That was that pre pre COVID. That was in Texas. That was in Texas. No, oh, yeah, that, was yeah, in, that was in yeah. that was in in rural rural yeah, England. That was in the UK. Yeah. Well, listen, my friend, um, I wish you uh, all the very best for the new year. I hope you get to see some tennis over there, and uh, I hope you get to see some of the greats come and play indulge your other true love and we'll be able to speak hopefully uh, as this next year progresses because I'd, I'd love to kind of keep tabs on how your thoughts on this this framework develop well thank you very much grant for having me and it's great to see you again and i wish you all success for the coming year likewise we'll talk again soon thanks simon thanks bye well, as always, uh, an hour or so with Simon has ended up in a bunch of new ideas and possibilities rattling around my head where I'm quite sure they'll stay for some time as I try and think through what they all might mean in the coming months. Now, some of you will no doubt focus on the discussion about climate change, but do try and understand that Simon, like the rest of us, is reading and distilling information and coming up with his own conclusions, as each of us should. Even for the most strident believer in global warming, the idea that science may be wrong is, I think, worth entertaining. Because as my last guest, Felix Zulaf, pointed out correctly, if they are, then global cooling presents us with a significant challenge based on what it would mean for agricultural yields at the very least. The Grand Chessboard of Brzezinski and Mackinder, for those of you unfamiliar with it, is a subject about which I'd urge you to do some further research of your own. And Simon's anecdotal evidence of Chinese and Russian gold holdings are two more ideas that I personally believe are far more robust than just another one of those wacky precious metals conspiracy theories of which there are so many. Well, that's all from me after another wonderful conversation. Thank you all for listening, as always, and my very best wishes to all of you for a happy, healthy, and prosperous 2022. I'll see you next time.
Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.